Uh, Acts chapter 4. I want to begin reading with verse 32 and read down through verse 35. Acts chapter 4. In the um, middle of the saturation of this passage, uh, the key seems to be uh, right in the middle, which is verse 33. So take special note of verse 33 um, and what he does with it. He says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did any say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostle gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the feet of the apostles, and they were distributed to each as anyone had need. It's interesting that he's describing the early church. He did that in chapter 2 as well. And that seems to be an important emphasis as he describes what was going on in the dynamics and relational relationships of those members of the early church. And by this time, there must have been in the thousands of them as they were all in Jerusalem and were Jews. And he definitely says they were one heart and one soul. And then he enters into this financial, materialistic, physical uh, involvement that they seem to have uh, in their, their viewpoint. And here he says they, in verse 32, And neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And then when you get down to verse uh, 34, he says, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all were possessors, who were possessors of lands and houses, sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, laid them at the feet of the apostles. So he starts with this idea of financial generosity. He ends with this idea of financial generosity. And in the middle, he puts this verse 33. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now, you don't have any choice in the flow of the passage, but to say that the the way they treated financially their possessions had something to do with the verse 33, which has to do with the great power of their witness and the great grace that they were experiencing. That somehow that forms the framework within which the witness actually took place which seems to be significant. In fact, you'll note in verse 32 in my translation, it gives the word neither. Neither did anyone say. And then in verse 34, he says, nor was. And really, verse 32 and 34 should be connected. But he stuck this verse 33 right in the middle of it. I'm really interested in the phrase, and great grace was upon them all. Uh, if I say the word indulgent, I don't know what that, how that registers with you. With me, it registers in a negative sense. Indulgent, that's a negative term. If you say he's an indulgent parent, I immediately think, oh man, he spoiled his kid rotten. Yeah, never gave the kid a chance to go up against things that were tough and never allowed him to really develop character and be the godly person 
that God, had, he just spoiled him, gave him everything, fought all of his battles for him. He's an indulgent parent. Would you uh, have the nerve to come to God, the Trinity God, and say, God, you are indulgent? I would not admit or want to say that even indicate that God spoiled us. Because he doesn't think like that. There's no question about that. Uh, he allows us in the middle of all kinds of tough things and disciplines us with the wonder of his spirit and allows difficulties to come to our lives that shape us and make us, but never leaving us on our own. And yet, could you think in a positive sense of the indulgent Jesus? In fact, if you go to the dictionary, it's interesting. It means, the word indulgent literally means a tendency to be overly generous, lenient with one another. Boy, doesn't that describe Jesus? <laughs> oh, listen to these words. Listen to this word. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What would you call that? I would call that indulgent. <laughs> that is way overboard. That is, wow. That is, that is extreme, is it not? That God indeed is an indulgent God. In fact, the very subject of grace, which is what we're talking about in verse 33, great grace, the idea of grace is bespeaks of indulgence. In fact, grace is the idea of blessings and favor that's extended to us. But folks, one of the things that isn't said very often, that in the definition of grace itself, yes, it's a blessing and a favor that we don't deserve, but it's given without any expectation of receiving anything back. That's indulgent. Sure it is. That's dying for me. And hey, manly, whatever you do, it's all okay. I'm going to do it anyhow. Wow. I don't expect anything back. I'm not looking. I don't have an angle. I don't, hey, I'm not expecting. You can keep your money, manly. That's indulgent. Colossians says, and he is before all things and in him all things consist. The word consist is mind-boggling. It's two words put together. It's together with and to set. It's the idea of holding together. It's the idea that God literally has extended his hand and is holding your molecules together so you don't fly apart. You're an atomic bomb. And the only thing that keeps you together keeps all the particles of your system together and form in the shape you are, whatever shape it is. The shape that you are is his divine hand. He is holding, the grace of God is holding you together. That's indulgent, folks. That's, that's amazingly indulgent. That's off the wall. 
In fact, the whole idea of provenient grace comes into play on that. And we talk about that all the time. The amazingness of provenient grace that says, I didn't love him. He loved me so that I could love him. I didn't come to him. He came to me so I could come to him. He intervened in my life with no benefit to himself because he is an indulgent. Do you understand the whole dynamic of Ephesians 1 when you get into it that it's a positional thing? That God has literally taken everything he wants you to have, all the forgiveness of his grace, all the wonder of his power, all the greatness of his personhood, and he's literally put it into a category, put it into a position. He's put it in your account at the bank. Yeah, you can go to hell. I got that. You can live in depression. I got that. You can live filled with anxiety. I got that. You can live in all of the, all of the degree of the world. I got that. But you will never get away from the fact that in your account is the abundant resource of all that God's destiny contains for you. It's all yours. That's indulgent. That's off the wall. That's so far out. God is an indulgent God. When you come to our passage, there are viewpoints, two basic viewpoints to the phrase, and great grace was upon them all. You can read the commentaries and all the arguments about it. But some view the great grace that was upon the church at this point, that Luke is writing to tell us the great grace, one viewpoint is, the great grace is literally how Jerusalem, the populace of Jerusalem, viewed the early church. And there's indication for that. Hey, the lame beggar, he's just, he's been healed and there's been all of this great rejoicing in Jerusalem and the name of Jesus is being spilled all over the place and, and Peter has been preaching and the early church has been ministering and all of this has been happening and, and it's been phenomenal. And the early church, the Sanhedrin, they would love to fix the apostles. They'd love to get to them. They have threatened them. They've said, don't speak about the name of Jesus ever again. But the pressure of the crowds, the acceptance of Jerusalem, all that's been going on in among the people as they talk about the miracle and as they talk about the apostles and Jesus and the early church they, they are so accepted that the Sanhedrin really can't touch them and the authors are saying or the scholars are saying some scholars are saying that that is what is being stated here that great grace, favoritism, favor the church has received favor in the populace of Jerusalem now the other view of this is that the great grace is not about how the early church was viewed by the populace of Jerusalem. But it is speaking about the indulgent God of ours who is pouring grace out upon them all. I want to propose to you that what is being said here is exactly that. That this doesn't have anything to do with the populace of Jerusalem and whether they're patting the church on the back or not. This has to do about the overwhelming 
abundant grace, an indulgent God who is spilling himself out upon the church. And if you would say, why are you, why would you view that that way? I would take you back to verse 33. Look at the verse with me. He begins in my translation with the word and. And with great power. It's the Greek word ka, K-A-I. It's the idea of linking two equal ideas together. Which he's doing. So he's linking the financial generosity of the early church with the fact that there's this great power that's found in the apostles as they give witness to the resurrection of God. Resurrection of Jesus. So he's equating those two ideas and bringing them together. I get that. But then you go to the great grace phrase and in my translation again verse 33 and great grace was upon them all. It's not the same word. It's not ka, K-A-I. It's ta, which is T-E. Which is an altogether different emphasis. It's an annex idea. In other words, you got the main building and then you got this annex, which is the gymnasium. The classrooms. Here's the sanctuary, the church office. Here's the gymnasium. Here's the sanctuary. Here's the fellowship hall. It's an annex. So he's saying that the grace thing is an annex. The main building that I want to talk to you about, he says, is great power. Here's the great power. But the annex to that, that you got to know, it's, it's not an equal idea, although he's not downgrading grace at all. And if you talked about it in another way, it would be equal. But he's, he's discussing, here's the great power. But I want to tell you why there's great power. I want to tell you the foundation of the great power. I want to tell you where the great power is, the context in which the great power flows. I want to tell you that it's all this great grace. This great grace. It's the very context within which they are experiencing the power of the the witness of the resurrection. And it's in that framework that this overwhelming power that moved their world took place. It was by the indulgent grace of God Upon their lives. Now another thing that you see that makes you think that. Again is verse 33. It says great power. And he parallels that great grace. (coughs) If he had just said power and then great grace. uh, But it's great power and great grace. Like the amount of power that flows is somehow all connected and integrated with the amount of grace that is given. So he parallels those two ideas in the passage that makes you think, isn't it interesting that the scriptures doesn't, and in this, it doesn't say anything about great talent was displayed. (laughs) It just amazes me in the book of Acts. Then it never talks about talent. Which of course is probably why my name isn't in there. (laughs) It has nothing to do with talent. Isn't it interesting that in the book of Acts it talks nothing about personality. They were all type A's. Personality types had nothing to do with it. Isn't it interesting that education is distinctly downplayed in the book of Acts. 
you come and the Sanhedrin says, oh, they're all uneducated, what is this? Don't you think that's interesting? And that the emphasis of the whole ministry that took place is, oh, great grace, great grace, great grace, great indulgent, an indulgent God. <clears throat> Let me help you with this. Number one, the principle of possession. What does that mean? Principle of possession. That means that you cannot express grace unless you have it. You cannot express grace unless you have it. But you have it. Because he's an indulgent God. And he has taken every bit of resource that he wants you to have that's all wrapped up in your destiny and he has put it in place. And in the activity within that possession. <coughs> ministry takes place and you cannot express grace unless you have it oh it's all over the passage think of the disciples again don't you think it's interesting that here's Jerusalem and here's where the big boys live the guys that write the fat books and here's all the and they go to opera and here's all the the sophistication and, and scholarship of all of Jerusalem here it all is and when Jesus went to choose his disciples dear people is it not significant he didn't get one single disciple from there he went to Galilee And the 11 that we have represented in this passage with the one more, Matthias, that they added on to in place of Judas are all from up there, Galilee, 80 to 100 miles away. They read comic books. They listened to country and western music. They didn't, the opera was foreign to them. They, they just, they had... And how do you explain all, that, all, that, all that's going on in the passage? It's all. Can, 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 you see, can you see the disciples? Can you see the 12 of them? Can you see, can you see Peter? He, he, he takes his right hand and he reaches over and he grabs a hold of the hand of a lame beggar and, and yanks him to his feet and says, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk, man. And that guy takes off. Can you see Peter looking at his hand saying, Whoa. That's the same identical hand that three times said, Hey, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know him. Three times, nah. Said to a little, little, little servant girl, nah. Said to a guy, no. No, that same hand that just received the power of God to yank a man to his feet was the same hand that three, 
What do you call that, folks? I call that grace. I say, whoa, that's the grace of an indulgent God that would use that, that, that same hand, that same hand, they came to Solomon's porch because the guy was running all around the temple and, and attracting, uh, attracting quite a crowd. And there were at least 10,000 people who came and they were all staring at Peter and the lame beggar who was holding on to Peter like mad for fear that his miracle would go away if Peter got away. And so he's hanging on and this whole crowd is staring at Peter and Peter gets this overwhelming, horrifying feeling that the whole crowd thinks... He did something. And in overwhelming power, Peter declares, wait guys, hey, there's nothing going on here except great grace. Great grace. There's no spatial ability. There's no... There's no spatial content. There's no spatial talent. There's no spatial anything, man. Great grace. Great grace. Great grace has come to me. And you never can give the expression of great grace unless you possess the great grace itself. And the great power somehow is found in the context of the great grace. Why am I living full of anxiety? Why am I living depressed? Why do I let body drives defeat me? Why do I dwell in hatred and anger? And there is grace. Great, great grace. Great grace. Let me give you a second idea. The principle of possession. You cannot express grace unless you have it. Number two, the principle of proclamation. You cannot have grace unless you express it. That's the passage. God always gives His grace with purpose. Never just gives it. And always, this is not, oh, I feel good. No. It's way beyond feeling good. It's way beyond, it's into destiny. It's into purpose. It's into direction. It's into accomplishment. It's into... See, if God heals you of cancer, He doesn't just heal you of cancer and say, ooh... I want you to feel well. 
heals you of cancer for distinct purpose. See, he doesn't raise lame beggars to their feet just for the fun of it. He has an overwhelming purpose in raising a lame beggar that persecution of the early church might take place, that there might be a spread, a scattering, and Christianity might move out of a Jewish little, a little Jewish sect into a world evangelism. It all took place revolving around a lame beggar, man. So when God does a miracle, when God does, when God, and when great power shows up, what, what does that produce? That always produces some great, it always accomplishes some great, great purpose, some great, God never just does, just, uh, always, always with great purpose. Destiny is involved. <laughs> It's the Sermon on the Mount all over again. Wow. Hard to get away from that thing. Because it was a manifesto of the kingdom. So it was the very foundation principles of everything that Jesus was going to operate in and do and, and accomplish and, and establish and, 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 and bring about. And it was the fundamental of the poorness of spirit, the absolute helplessness of the human life, the poor in spirit that would literally be embraced by that poorness, that helplessness until the overwhelming resource of the person of God himself would come and literally merge with that helplessness. And would the helpless cease to be helpless? Absolutely not. The helpless are always helpless. And never get out of that. They live in the boundaries of that. They never step out of that. They never get cocky. They never act like, oh, I can do this. They never move into a pride issue that's always within. They always live within the realm of the helplessness because that's what allows the wonder of his resource to literally do through them everything he's dreamed he could do. So am I as helpless as I've always been? Absolutely. And that every single example he gives in the Sermon on the Mount in that chapter 5 brings you back to that. The old said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's fair, I know. But Jesus said, I'm not interested in fairness. I'm interested in grace. I'm interested in grace. I'm interested in great grace. What would great grace bring about? He says, when they come and they backhand you up at the right cheek, you immediately insult you. You immediately, you don't just refrain. You don't just, I'm not going. You don't just bite your lip. You don't just count to ten. You don't, no, that's not, that's not what this is about. You, you, you let your helplessness be embraced by his overwhelming resource and in, the, in, and in the merger of your helplessness in his and his resource, his nature and your nature, you think like he thinks and how does he think? Great grace. Great grace. Great grace. Have you experienced that? 
hand. When you think of Peter and his hand reaching out and grabbing a hold of a lame beggar and experiencing, can't you? Wow! All that I, all the grace that I've experienced, why couldn't I be lenient to a lame beggar who is absolutely worthless to my society and absolutely in my way and I've tolerated him all this time and he's a plight on society. Why, why wouldn't the grace, the great, what, after what I've experienced, the grace, I can afford to be indulgent. Can't I? Because it's so abundant in my life. And when they ask me to go the second mile, I can afford to go the second mile and the third and the fourth and the fifth. Why? Because how far did he walk? How abundant has been his. How overwhelming. How indulgent. Am I spoiled? And would you not say with me that the very resistance I have to someone slapping me, insult, the very resistance I have to that. is perhaps a slap in the face of his grace. So folks, great grace. You're a marvel, Jesus. And you've got to forgive me in this hour. For I would put on sackcloth and ashes For every time I have not extended grace when I have received so much. And for every time I have not loved when so much love, when I have not been generous 
when you have been so overwhelmingly generous. When I've not been merciful and you, I have received so much mercy. When I've not been kind and I have received so much kindness. When I'm not given the benefit of doubt, when you have been so lenient, when I have not forgiven, when I have received so much forgiveness. Break me. And the greatest sin of the church may be we come together on Sunday morning and say, I want to be like you. And saying, oh, to be like you. Christ-like. Would you let me feel like you feel? Would you let me see things like you see them? <clears throat> and could I take anything that your grace has given to me? And could I become spiritually superior because I have it. And would I not take every gift you've offered to me? And would I not bow in absolute humility that I have received received and received and received. Heads are bowed. Don't go big with this. Stay small. Would you go to one single incident in your life. One crisis, one conflict, one emotion, one situation may not even be your fault. But would you just go to one where you have received abundance of grace and you've not expressed it? And would you get on your face and would you admit it to him? Would you go to one, just, just one, just, just one place where you weren't forgiving, and, but you've received a lot of forgiveness, but you weren't forgiving in that one? And would you see it for what it is? It's a slap in the face of his grace. 
and it nullifies the power of ministry in the life. Would you go to one place, just, just one, where in the conflict you were not merciful, but you've received so much mercy. Come on. Just stay small. Don't go big. Just one place. Would you get on your face? Would you get on your knees? If you can't kneel, come and stand. Just in that one scene. Oh God. Oh God. It's in your account. Feel free to draw on it today. The indulgent God has lavishly, extravagantly, wastefully, abundantly, lavished upon you. These are your moments.